Our New Testament reading is from Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. You can find it on page 549 in the paper Bibles. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's not the passage you were expecting on Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, you were, uh, this is December 24th, you wanted to hear about the uh, baby Jesus with the golden fleece diapers um, and the wise men and the shepherds and the, the songs and the angels singing. Um, I, I think it's good sometimes to break out of that uh, sentimentality. Uh, sentimentality is not always bad. Um, it's good to um, be moved by those things. Um, but it's also, I think, important um, and valuable for us uh, to, to be sober on a day like this, to think uh, clearly and deliberately uh, about what exactly was happening um, as uh, this baby was being born, as uh, heaven was, was entering our universe. Um, in the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is a very um, powerful line. Uh, speaking to the town of Bethlehem, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. In Bethlehem, this, I mean, this really was a little town. It was you know, probably some mud, probably not very many people, probably not more than a couple of hundred at the time. Uh, the hopes and fears of all the years are being met in this town, in this little out-of-the-way shepherding farming community 
all the hopes and fears of the entire world throughout all of history are being answered. Um, Catherine pointed to me uh, this week a line from a, a sermon from St. Augustine, you know, 15, 1600 years ago. Augustine said, Man's maker was made man so that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at a mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light might sleep, that the way might become tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused by false witnesses, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation might be suspended on wood, that strength, strength itself, might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. Uh, this is a sober day. Something that was happening in the story of Christmas um, that is uh, terrible. And I mean terrible in a, uh, as in terrifying. Uh, as in uh, great and terrible. The thing that's happening in the story of Christmas is something that you would expect to burst our universe like a bubble. The God, right, in whom, as the Bible says, we live and move and have our being, like our whole universe exists in some sense within him because he's that enormous and we are made by him, in him, was entering the universe like a, a, like a water balloon floating in the ocean then you find out the whole ocean is about to enter that water balloon. Like, it's going to be uh, destroyed in an instant. Before anything can really happen, the water balloon is going to be completely destroyed. Uh, I mean, if you knew, if you had a, a clear understanding of who and what God is, and then you found out God was going to become a human being, you'd be like, this is it, this is the end. If you knew what was going to happen, uh, you should have been terrified. Uh, and this is what's happening when, as Jesus of Nazareth was conceived and grew inside his mother's womb and was born. God himself was within his creation, and yet the creation was not destroyed. So we're looking uh, at a very sober text and we're dealing with a very sober idea. Uh, the major point um, that this passage in Romans is, is making is this. It's the same point of Christmas. Right? This isn't a Christmas text, but the point that this passage of, is making is the whole point that the story of Christmas is making. That we need a new kind of humanity. We need a new kind of humanity, and Jesus is the beginning of the new humanity. 
We need a new kind of humanity, and Jesus is the beginning of that new humanity. Uh, in the last uh, several weeks, um, we've been looking at um, how Jesus embodies uh, three particular offices that he is anointed to, that Jesus is uh, uh, anointed as as the, the true and greater prophet, a greater prophet than Moses, a true prophet in comparison with Moses, doing what Moses uh, in a way was called to do, but in a way that Moses could never do. That he was a true and greater priest, doing what the priests were called to do, but could never do. And that he was a true and greater king, doing what the king was called to do, but could never do. Because of weakness. Uh, and here, uh, we're finally looking at uh, Jesus being the, not just the true and greater prophet, priest, and king, but the true and greater humanity itself. So the prophet, the priest, and the king, they had jobs. They had things that they were supposed to accomplish, um, but they were limited. Um, they were limited by mortality. They were limited by their own weakness. They were limited by their frailty. They were limited by their sin. Uh, and Jesus uh, fulfilled those roles and still fulfills them. And humanity itself, in fact, what it means to be human is to have a job to do. Um, when we're talking about a human, theologically or in the Bible, we're not talking about a particular genetic code. We're not talking about the species Homo sapiens, although the species is, is who we are. Uh, but that's not what it means to be human. What it means to be human is this. And, I, and we get this from uh, Genesis chapter 1, which you can take a look at if you want to. It's on page 1 if you're <laughs> looking in your paperback Bible. So at the end of, at the end of this song of creation, um, this, this hymn uh, about uh, how and why uh, God was making the world, it culminates with him creating humanity, a man and a woman, male and female. And after he creates them, it says that he created them in his image and says this to them. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of, of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given you every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But those instructions, that's a, that's a calling that God has given to us as a people, as a species, if you will, as a, as a collective humanity, this is what it means for us to be human. We are the creatures to whom God has said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. We are the creatures to whom God has said, you are my image. That's what it means to be human. Our genetic code changes as generation to generation. Um, it, could, it could be changing even more rapidly uh, with some of the technological advances that we've been learning about. Um, but that's not going to change this, that we are the people to whom God has said, you are my image, 
Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So what is a human? A human uh, is a person to whom God has given that calling. And that calling is to show the world what God is like as his image, to show the world what God is like and to direct worship toward him, the way that the image of any deity is designed to direct worship toward him. They had statues of Zeus or, or Hades or whoever in various temples, and they were, but the purpose of them is to direct worship toward that God. We are God's images. As a species, we are God's image. And our purpose is to direct worship toward God. And second, to care for and protect the earth on God's behalf. Right? To represent God as, as his image and to uh, represent God as kind of his king, his, his viceroys. To protect and care for the earth on God's behalf. So how's that going for us? How are we doing? Uh, how are we doing at directing worship toward God? Uh, are we concerned about that? Uh, or are we concerned about our own kingdoms, our own worship? How are we, how are we doing at caring for the world? Uh, are we doing well? Uh, I think that that, that in particular uh, might be obvious that we're uh, doing very poorly these days. But truly, our, our problems uh, are deep, uh, and even deeper than the fact that we're not quite living up to our calling, uh, not quite living up to who we're supposed to be as humanity. Um, and if we continue, if you turn over to page two, um, there's a the passage in your Bible uh, there, that's beginning in chapter three, titled The Fall. Um, and if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know what happened here, right? That uh, God had made one rule, which was don't eat from this tree. You can eat from all the other trees. I'm giving you one tree uh, that's going to give you life. And I'm giving you all the other trees that you can eat from for, your, uh, for nourishment. But there's one tree as a token of the fact that, as a token of the fact that you know that life comes from me and that you're dependent on me to live, uh, Leave this one tree alone. And of course, you know the story. Uh, we didn't leave that one tree alone. Right? We couldn't, couldn't stand the fact uh, of being dependent on him for life, and we wanted to take life into our own hands. Um, our first parents committed that sin. Um, and we now uh, are infected, if you will, with what we theologically call original sin. And if you are skeptical of, of the Bible or skeptical of Christianity, um, even if you're not, this may be a sticking point for you, uh, you might be asking, wait, you really believe in that? Original sin? Uh, we do. And, and what I want to say is, do you not? Do you not believe in that? Do you not know like, do you know any people? Do you like? Have you? Uh, do you know any children? Um, I mean, as a people, we are on one hand beautiful. On one hand, we are stunning. Um, you know, Hamlet was not wrong. You know how and uh, what a piece of work a human being is. How magnificent. Uh, how uh, steeped in love we are. How uh, noble. 
Um, but look at a child's first words. You know, on the one hand, their first words, mama, dada, daddy, mommy. Uh, but on the other hand, they have, you know, among their first words very, very quickly are mine and no. And if you have twins, the word mine comes up much earlier than you even expect. Uh, I was amazed uh, with each of our sets of twins just how quickly they learned to say mine. I mean, if you, I, are you married? Do you have any co-workers? I mean, we're a, we're a highly cooperative species. Like, we, we function best working together, but look uh, at how vicious and petty we can be, how divisive we can be. Um, I mean, in your work, have you, like, never known that coworker who just, just seems like everything that they do is against you? Everything that they do is against their own good. Everything that they do is against the company's good. Uh, never let go of a grudge. Um, Deborah Bitzer, who's not here today, um, I have her permission to tell the story. At our community group this week, um, we were talking about housemates and what it's like to, she's looking for a, a new roommate for her apartment. Um, and she, she's just, you know, kind of laughing, said, everyone, everyone is a liar when they are interviewing to be your roommate. She's like, oh yeah, oh, I'm, I'm totally laid back. I'm never in the apartment very much. I'm very, very tidy, uh, no drama. Uh, and you know, and the, everyone, the, you start to live with them and you find out, oh, there is drama. You know, do your old roommates, would they say you were no drama? You know, and as you are thinking of those people in your life who you would tell those stories about, um, take a moment to realize that there's somebody telling that story about you, like maybe right now. Like maybe right now they're going, boy, there's this person I work with, you wouldn't believe. Boy, I had this roommate a long time ago, you wouldn't believe. Maybe even more importantly, you indict yourself. You know, as you think about the standards that you have for other people, um, the ways that other people uh, drive you crazy, um, don't you know that you do the same thing? And our ways of dealing with these problems are also weak. Right? Our go-to maneuvers, blame-shifting, self-justifying, uh, saying that the rules don't apply to us, or even worse, uh, more dangerously, thinking that we keep the rules, thinking that our efforts to, to stay on top of things and, and just be the best, just be the most righteous, uh, those end up, that, that ends up being the tool that we use to condemn other people the most harshly. Um, as we were uh, talking about this passage this week, kind of one of the one of the ways that uh, preachers will sometimes approach uh, preparing a sermon is to like read read the passage in the Bible, and and one of the questions you ask is to say, well, what sin is being addressed in this passage? Um, and so this week, Logan asked me, like, well, what do you think the sin 
issue in this passage is, and I'm like, uh, all of them, all of them. Uh, because that's what this, what, this, this, what this passage is doing. It's, it's indicting us in our entirety. Uh, it's telling us that we only, only the death of the Son of God could be good enough to fix us. Only a, a completely new kind of human being can solve our problems. And what if it's not the way it's supposed to be? What if, you know, what if uh, Richard Dawkins is wrong? And it's not just, oh, we have this selfish gene. Um, what if selfishness is not the way it's supposed to be? What if self-righteousness is not the way it's supposed to be? What if it could be another way? What if it would be possible for us to be people who would actually direct worship toward God and care for the world and honor the dignity of other people in whom God's image is carved? What if that were possible? What would it take for us? And so in this passage, um, St. Paul is describing uh, two different humanities. One humanity, he's saying, is in Adam, the first man, and the other humanity is in Christ, whom he's, who, who he calls the last Adam. It's like these two species almost, if you will accept that metaphor. Uh, the theological term for that uh, is a federal head, right? A representative uh, who determines the rest of the fate of all the rest of us. And I know, like, as Americans, we're like, that is not fair. Not okay that this, you know, that these two human beings, however many millennia ago, messed up, and now uh, we suffer the consequences. Right? And that's, I think, what you'd be saying. You're like, you really believe in original sin? But again, if it's not that, then what? Why are we the way that we are? But the tremendous point that this passage is making is not how horrible it is that we would be trapped by somebody else's uh, mistake. But what it's saying over and over again in here is, if that is possible... How much more possible is it that through one good, righteous representative, we could all be saved? So, yeah, as, as Americans, it's a, it's a troublesome concept for us that a representative could determine our fate. Um, but there are a couple of points of contact, a couple of ways in which we can begin to, to grasp it. And the two that come to my mind are one, uh, say, a unit in the military, and the other being a department within a corporation. So, you know, if you've ever had a corporate job, you had a department head, you had somebody who was your boss, uh, kind of over your whole department, all of the people that you worked with, um, and they make the decisions for your de uh, department, they give you instructions that you follow, um, and they are in a large way de determining what happens in your life. So imagine that you're in a department like that, 
And your department head, let's call him Bob, department head Bob uh, makes a huge mistake. And your department, as a result of Bob's mistake, messes up incredibly, costs the company tremendous amount of money. And Bob's boss thinks that the only solution is to fire everybody in that department. You can feel that's unfair, uh, but that's a thing that could happen, right? That Bob's mistake affected all of you. But then imagine that at the last minute, department head Janet, who heads another department, looks at you and says, you know, uh, I would actually like to have her in my department and transfers you from the one department to the other. And Janet's department has done really well and Janet's department are all getting bonuses. And because you were transferred, now you're getting the bonus too. Now there's a degree, you might say, of unfairness in that. Um, but unfairness is not the same as injustice. And you might feel unfair, but it wouldn't be unjust. But to really uh, understand it, I think we would have to say that Bob didn't simply, department head Bob didn't simply make a mistake. Let's say that department head Bob actually uh, hatched a, a, a scheme to rip off the company and everybody in the department participated in it. It was Bob's idea, Bob set it in motion, but he puts the opportunity in front of you and you take it. All right. Being in Bob's department didn't, wasn't just kind of guilt by association. It was guilt by infection. It was guilt by temptation. It was guilt by uh, both. You're, you're guilty because of being part of this department, but you're also guilty because you participated. And that's the condition that we find ourselves in with Adam as our federal head. And then we're transferred. How much more? If one person's sin could affect us so negatively, how much more could one person's righteous act save us? Right, being in the bad department made you actually bad. But what if being in department head Janet's department could make you actually good, could change you from being a thieving, conniving uh, worker to being an honest, productive, selfless worker. And I know that you know, we're stretching the metaphor. Uh, and that's okay, because what really um, this passage is driving at is life. Um, the real metaphor uh, that Paul wants to use here is life and death. Right? That it says that in Adam, we all died. Yeah, you go, well, look, I'm not, I'm not dead. I'm moving around. I'm talking. In Adam, we all died. And in Christ, we're all made alive. He's talking about, clearly, a, a different kind of life than biological life. He's talking about 
uh, as if we were statues, images of God, looking like him. But then what if the statues could actually come alive? What if we could live? What if we could live the way that we're supposed to live? What if we could feel the way that we're supposed to feel? What if we could become children of God? Um, maybe kind of like Pinocchio. Right? In the story of Pinocchio, he, he, he's moving around, he's talking, but he's not real. And he knows he's not real. And he wants to be real. What if we could become real? What if we could become real humans? What if we could live? What if we could go from being animated puppets to being real humans? And this is the deeper difference between Adam and Jesus. Jesus is the new kind of human. If we can be in Jesus in the same way that we were born in Adam, we could become that, kind, that new kind of human. Almost like changing who you descended from. Right? It, doesn't just, it doesn't just change your legal status. It doesn't just change your inheritance. Um, but it would change you fundamentally from being the old kind of human, the old kind that's an animated puppet, a statue that's not alive, to being a real, real human, real life. Jesus is the first real human. Right? Adam did not care for and protect the earth. Right? When his, he was, you know, God gives him the job to exercise dominion over the whole world and gives him and, and Eve beginning a, just a plot of ground, one garden. Start here uh, and we'll grow. Um, but as soon as an invader came in, instead of protecting and exercising dominion over that just even that little plot of ground, um, uh, Adam decided to aggrandize himself. Right? He accepts the, the serpent's offer, if you remember the story, was you can be uh, wise like God. And so Adam, instead of protecting and exercising dominion over the earth, decides to aggrandize himself. But in contrast with that, uh, Jesus uh, gave himself up to protect the world. Didn't just, didn't just give up uh, the prospect of, of his own glory, but gave up his own life. And Adam uh, declined to uh, direct worship toward God, but instead wanted to receive worship himself. He wanted to be a God on his own. But Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death. And in doing so, Jesus shows us what God is really like. Jesus shows us what God is really like. When we look at Jesus and we see what he does, 
how he lives, how he, you know, if you, again, if you were to hear that God was going to become a human being, what would you, go, what would you expect? If you didn't know, if you didn't know the story, you'd expect God's going to become a human being. Well, pretty clearly, he's going to have to be, I mean, the greatest king that's ever been. He's going to be, he's going to rule the whole world. He's going to have the biggest palace. He's going to have the, the flashiest uh, clothing. He's going to have the greatest armies. He's going to have the greatest armor. It's going to be amazing. Uh, But when God becomes a human being to show us what God is really like, he goes to, you know, a poor fishing community in northern Palestine, total backwater place, nobody from there, nobody goes there. He's a blue-collar worker, probably very poor, his whole life. This is to show us what God is really like. This is to show us what it really means to represent God on the earth. And even more than that, to show us what God is really like, Jesus lays down his life for us. God is not a king who demands that we sacrifice for him but he's a king who sacrifices himself for us. All right, so Jesus is the, is the real human being, the first real human being, because he's the first human being to actually do what a human being is, to do the job that makes a human being a human being, to be God's uh, representative, to care for and protect the world, to honor and dignify the image of God in other people, and to show the world what God is like and to direct worship to him instead of to himself. And the real crazy thing is that he's promising here to transform us to be like himself. He promised us to make us people who can love with real sacrificial love He promises to make us really alive. He promises to make us real humans, real people, not animated puppets, not statues, but alive, really alive. And these metaphors do uh, stretch credulity, and that's why uh, it's so important um, for us to go to this table we don't have bread. Do we have bread? We have bread. Great. Um, that's why it's so important for us to go to this table. Um, we, can, uh, we can put aside uh, thinking too hard about it and just receive the life that God wants to give us. That as we eat this supper, right, something backward happens. Right? When you eat uh, bread... Right? Your mouth takes it in, your stomach digests it, it's broken down into its components, your body takes what it needs from it, and the bread is transformed into you. Right? The, the, the protein from beans that you eat become your muscles. The beans are transformed into your muscles. They become you. Something backward happens when we eat this meal. And that's that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, which uh, we may speak of as the very body and blood of Jesus. 
Instead of them becoming us, we become him. We uh, receive his life and we're transformed. We go from being children of Adam to being children of God. We go from being in Adam to being in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for what you have done by becoming one of us, for bringing divine life, the life that God himself has and shares within himself and communicating it to us, giving us a new kind of life and making us a new kind of person, a new kind of human. Lord, we pray that you would uh, keep your promise and do what you have said you would do here. In Jesus' name, amen.